Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a close look at songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call, and it's the show's third birthday this week. Happy birthday to us. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter and the Instagram, and of course, the Facebook page, which can be found over at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. And if you can swing it, please consider supporting the show as a patron. You can click the button on the website or point your browser over to patreon.com slash howgooditis. For just $5 a month, you are getting the weekly newsletter penned by yours truly, with the week's music news, a dash of my opinions, and the history calendar. Plus, it's a quick five-minute read, so not too shabby. Today's trivia question came to me, I gotta admit, rather by surprise, and I'm I'm not sure if I'm framing it the best way for you, but let's have at it. What do Michael Jackson and Billy Crystal have in common? They have an interesting musical connection, and I invite you to figure it out. I will have the answer to that at the end of the show. And just like last week, this week's show was the result of a request by a friend of the show and patron, Jeremiah Coughlin, who has been bugging me for a while to cover a meatloaf song. And uh, it was his, his anniversary this past week as I'm recording this, so I can't let the guy down. Or can I? Let's find out. Let me tell you, let me tell you something about the Bad Out of Hell album. I was in high school the year it was released, and while it has sold about 41 million copies worldwide, I'm pretty sure that about 20 million of them were purchased by the Kings Park High School class of 1981, because that thing was absolutely everywhere for a while. Our school held a lot of dance nights as class fundraisers, and one of the highlights of those events was the DJ firing up Paradise by the Dashboard Light, while a couple of students would lip-sync the song in the middle of a big circle. I would not be surprised if school administrators just kind of gave up and started handing out copies of the record to new enrollees. Ah, the memories. Bat Out of Hell was born from the ashes of a musical called Neverland, which was a futuristic rock opera based on Peter Pan. Neverland was a workshop that Jim Steinman had created in 1974 and which had been performed at the Kennedy Center Music Theater Lab just a couple of years later. Steinman and Meatloaf were touring with the National Lampoon Show around that time, and they pulled three songs from Neverland that they thought were especially good, and they began to develop them as part of a longer set of songs that they hoped to turn into an album. Those songs were Bad Out of Hell, Heaven Can Wait, and a song called The Formation of the Pack, which eventually became All Revved Up and No Place to Go. But we're not talking about those guys, so let's move on. Bad Out of Hell, by the way, the opening track, that was Steinman's attempt to write an extreme splatter platter. And if you've heard some of this show's recent episodes, you know that a splatter platter is one of those songs, like Leader of the Pack, where some youngster dies an untimely death, usually in an auto accident. And Steinman has acknowledged that the next track, You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth, is basically the chords from The Who's Baba O'Reilly with a Phil Spector melody overlay. That spoken word introduction to the song, the whole on a hot summer night bit, comes from Neverland. It was specifically a set of wedding vows. Yeah. And in fact, when Bad Out of Hell became a Broadway musical, it was again used exactly that same way. 
All right, let's zero in on Paradise, shall we? About half the songs on the album, three out of the seven, are basically about a teenager's view of life and sex, including unrealistic views of romance mixed with strong physical urges. And while the track for Crying Out Loud has a line about Levi's bursting apart, it's pretty clear that Paradise by the Dashboard Light is the most upfront about its theme. But we not only get the romantic longing and the sexual tension, we're also treated to the consequences of that combination. Steinman has said that he wanted to write a car sex song in which everything goes horribly in the end, and that's pretty much exactly what happens here. One of the backup singers on the album was Ellen Foley, who had worked with Steinman and Meatloaf on the National Lampoon Tour, but most people remember her today as the public defender on the TV show Night Court during that program's second season before Marky Post took over the role permanently. At any rate, Foley was tapped to take on the female portion of the song. Now, the song is broken into four sections, although if you look at the lyric sheet on the inner sleeve, it's divided into three, basically combining the first two together. But I'm going to separate these two for our purposes today. The first one has the characters thinking back to their high school days and hanging out in his car by the lake, and things start escalating until we hear the boy saying over and over, we're going to go all the way tonight, we're going to go all the way, and tonight's the night. The vocal cuts out suddenly, and the music takes on a bit of a funk breakdown, at which point we move into part two. We're still in the car, but there's a baseball game on the radio, and Yankees announcer Phil Rizzuto is calling the ball game, which is obviously a metaphor for the boys' attempt to get into the girls' pants. Now, Phil Rizzuto recorded his portion of the record at the Hit Factory in New York City with Jim Steinman, Meatloaf, and the album's producer, Todd Rundgren, at the controls. Now, according to Steinman, it was his idea to use the baseball metaphor in that part of the record, but he and Meatloaf came around to using Rizzuto at pretty much the same time because they were both huge Yankees fans and liked to listen to Phil Rizzuto because sometimes he would say weird things. Rundgren, on the other hand, thought it was a pretty ridiculous idea, but he ultimately ran with it. Rizzuto was play, paid a flat fee of $1,000 to record his bit, and that's it. He, he never received royalties or anything else. And what you hear on the record is something like the ninth take, because Steinman felt that he wasn't sounding excited enough, and he needed coaching to get into the spirit of the non-existent game. Now, 
Also, according to Steinman, is the fact that Rundgren forgot to bring any of the existing tapes to the recording session so they didn't have the song for Rizzuto to hear or for him to record against, so they told him they would just wild track his recording and make it fit later on. Steinman also said that Rizzuto asked him specifically if this is somehow dirty, and they told him that it wasn't. This mostly matches up with Rizzuto's later version of the story. He said in a radio interview that he had his suspicions, especially because every play was a very close one, plus some of the language didn't make sense. For instance, when you have two outs, no baseball team is going to use a squeeze play. In a squeeze play, there's a runner on third, and the batter's going to bump the ball, expecting to be thrown out at first, but this gives the runner an opportunity to score. If there's two outs, well, the throw to first just ends the inning, and it doesn't matter what the runner does. Anyway, Rizzuto recorded the piece, he collected his $1,000, and that was that. Except, when the record came out, someone got a hold of it and took a copy down to Rizzuto, who was working with spring training for the Yankees, played it for him, and asked him for a reaction. Rizzuto was upset, especially since he was a religious fella, and sure enough, he got some flack from conservative fans of his, and he was forced to distance himself from the record afterwards, although he did have a little bit of a sense of humor about it. Sometime later, Jim Steinman and Meatloaf were invited to Yankee Stadium to present the team with a platinum record for the album, and they were in the dugout waiting to be called up when Rizzuto spotted them from the field and here is Jim Steinman's account of that meeting. So Rizzuto comes running into the dugout from off field, yelling at us. He goes, Steinman, meatloaf, you huckleberries. Why didn't you tell me this was dirty? The nuns are never going to forgive me. I take more. Oh, they, they won't leave me alone at the church about this. He's really religious. And he says, uh, everyone is telling me, didn't you know that the kids are having sex in the car? Oh, holy cow. I'll never get over My kids love it, though. My kids is their favorite. They like it more than my baseball sports cast. <laughs> and uh, you always remember, going, you huckleberries, you didn't warned me about this and him ranting about the nuns. <laughs> Steinman does a pretty good Rizzuto. Now, Meatloaf has said that Rizzuto knew exactly what he was recording, but I'm buying Steinman's account because it matches up so well with Rizzuto's, including the references to the nuns. After the baseball call, we move into the third segment of the song, where the boy and the girl are in a debate, and this is where Ellen Foley takes greater prominence in the song. The boy wants to go further, but the girl refuses unless he promises her his forever love. Naturally, he's stalling for time, so he tries to tell her that he's going to give her an answer the next day, and she's not buying it. The discussion goes back and forth and keeps escalating until finally he cracks and offers up the promise, swearing to God and on his mother's grave that he'll love her till the end of time. And that carries us directly into the final segment of the record, called Praying for the End of Time. At this point, we've moved back into the present, and the couple basically can't stand each other, but he's an honorable man, and he's not going back on his promise, so he's just going to wait for the sweet release of death to get him out of his vow. And the song fades out, again playing with the stereo channels a little bit by having him singing on the left side and her on the right. There are three versions of the song out there. The full album length is 8 minutes and 28 seconds. But on the 45, it appears almost in its entirety, fading out almost immediately after Meatloaf sings uh, So I Can End My Time With You. Still, at about 7.57, it's one of the longest songs to appear on a single side of a 45 RPM record. And then in some countries, the song is cut down to about 5.5 minutes, which would also include the entire baseball segment being cut out. Now, before I move on from the recording of the record, it is worth noting that there are a few prominent musicians on this song. 
I noted before that uh, Todd Rundgren produced the entire album, but he also provided some backup singing and guitar work on this track. That's Edgar Winter playing the saxophone. He's kind of buried in the mix, but he's in there. Uh, Roy Batan did all the keyboard work, and that's definitely worth noting because there's an organ in the mix that's doing a lot of heavy lifting. And I would call that the stealth MVP of this record, making the whole thing just a little bit more soap operatic. Uh, Batan, you might recall, is a member of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, as is Max Weinberg, who did the drumming on this record. So it's small wonder that the album's overall sound was compared to that of Springsteen's work. And Rundgren has admitted that the songs Jungle Land and Thunder Road might have influenced him a bit, but Rundgren has also suggested that at the time, he viewed the project as almost like a parody of Springsteen because it was just so operatic and over the top. Now, Steinman and Meatloaf had a tough time selling the album to a label, ultimately getting onto Cleveland International Records, which was a division of Epic. Uh, the problem was that everybody at Epic kind of hated it, so it was a minor miracle that they were able to talk the label into letting him make a video of the song. It's a simple performance clip, although the audience is nowhere to be seen. And then when you get to the Phil Rizzuto portion of the record, there are some clips of vintage baseball plays cut in and out. Uh, we see Carla DeVito lip-syncing the girls' part to Ellen Foley's vocals because by that time, Ellen Foley had other commitments and had moved on. And DeVito would usually be the onstage performer for the song anyway. But the fact is, the video is very effective and for a couple of reasons. First, Meatloaf was an actor first and a musician second, and so he had a great way of playing to the camera when he needed to. The other thing that made it successful, though, was that he managed to market the video in a very clever way. Remember, this was 1977 and MTV wasn't a thing yet. Meatloaf convinced movie theaters to run 35mm prints of the film before the midnight showings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which was starting to take on cult status and in which Meatloaf had appeared as Eddie. Today, those prints are extremely rare and only a few of them are still in playable condition. At any rate, the video proved to be popular enough that it managed to get decent airplay on MTV just a couple of years after the record's release. Now here's the part that most people forget. The song peaked at number 39 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, partly because it was classified as a novelty record. In Belgium, the song went to number two and it stayed there for five weeks, held out of the top spot the entire time by the Village People's YMCA. And I'm a little bit sorry that I didn't mention that when I talk about that song back in episode 80. But in the Netherlands, oh, the Netherlands. The song became Meatloaf's biggest hit, making it all the way to number one by the end of 1978. And then it became a hit all over again 10 years later in 1988. And in the UK, the song, although it's well known, didn't chart at all at the time. But when rock stations over there do special, whatever, top 3,000 of all time, Paradise by the Dashboard Light is consistently somewhere in the top 30. Now, I don't know of any serious covers of the song, although it was used in the TV show Glee, but it has been used a couple of times in commercials. In uh, 2003, General Motors used the song to promote a 24-hour test drive campaign called Sleep On It. Uh, but the slightly crazier one is from 2008, when the song was reworked to sell AT&T's Go Phone. The ad involves Meatloaf himself as a father, uh, whose son has asked for this specific phone. Partway through, you're going to hear a female voice, and that would be Tiffany Darwish, usually just known as Tiffany, 
pop star from the late 1980s. And while you have to see the video for yourself, I'm going to play part of it here. This was a 90-second commercial, and I'm only playing about the first hey, minute. Dad, I want a go phone. Let me sleep on it. It has a limited talking text. Let me sleep on it. And no surprise bill. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna have to link that commercial that in, in at the website because you have to I I don't understand what's going on with Tiffany. She appears to be when you first see her, it, it looks like she's carrying I think it's an entire leg of lamb, and then later on there's a dove. You you have to see it. It's it's just just plain weird. And now it is time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you what Michael Jackson and Billy Crystal have in common musically. This is, I'll admit, a tenuous connection, but the answer is composer Rod Temperton. If you remember all the way back to episode 15, then you remember that Temperton was the composer of Jackson's biggest single, Thriller, from 1982. Temperton wrote a lot of hit songs, and a few of them wound up in movies, including E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and The Color Purple. But Temperton also wrote almost all the music for the film Running Scared, which starred Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines as a pair of cops who are out to make one last big bust before they retire. That soundtrack resulted in multiple charting hits, two of them written by Temperton. the first one, Man Size Love by Climax. The video for this song features the band at a drive-in theater and Running Scared is the film that they're there to see. At the end of the video, it's actually edited to look as though Climax is performing in the movie itself, with the band performing in a corner of a bar that's designed to look like the one in the film, and then it's interspersed with shots from the film that take place in the bar. song would be Sweet Freedom by Michael McDonald. Now the video for that song has Michael McDonald performing the song in a tropical bar, but while it also features clips from the movie, the way Climax does, it's got a lot of footage that Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal shot specifically in character for the video. So first it opens with the characters reading postcards from Michael McDonald, and then all of a sudden they're down in Key West dancing and clowning around with the bar patrons and singing backups for McDonald. 
So Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines, if you want to be more specific, are tied to Michael Jackson and that they appear in videos for hit songs written by Rod Temperton. And all of this came about because I was watching Running Scared the other night for maybe the hundredth time, and I suddenly recognized Temperton's name appearing in those opening credits. And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you are enjoying the show, please, please take the time to share it with somebody. And maybe even leave a rating somewhere. And now you can support the show over at patreon.com slash howgooditis. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Or... You can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we meet up with a psycho killer. Wait, what? Yeah, that's what it says here. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Next time.